Hello team and welcome to episode 430 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Doug Garland. Doug is a retired orthopedic surgeon who's practiced for 37 years and now spends a good portion of his time researching and writing about tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy syndrome, or TPS as it's commonly known, is a rarely discussed metaphor of cutting down the outliers in society. TPS is everywhere, and although you've probably come across it before, you probably never really realized what impact it has especially if you're the cutter. In this episode, you can expect to learn what TPS truly is and how it impacts us, who is the most prevailing and well-known tall poppy that we've all heard of, along with how we can navigate TPS in the era of social media. So without further ado, Dr. Doug Garland. Doug Garland, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. I'm glad to hear it, and I'm very excited to get into our topic of conversation before. I'm really looking forward to getting into our topic of conversation today, I should say. And before we do dive in, I'd love for you to give a little context about who you are and what it is that you do. I grew up in a small town in central Iowa, Uh, which is a farm community in the Midwest for your listeners. And I eventually became a physician and an orthopedic surgeon and moved to L.A. because of the opportunity. I was eventually a clinical professor of orthopedics at USC University and published more than 120 scientific articles. And I eventually became tall poppied, which was uh, not life-changing, but uh, mentally changing for me. And I grew a lot emotionally from that experience, but it it was just a little bit shy of when I was going to retire. So then when I retired, I had plenty of free time. We moved out of LA into what's called the central coast of California, which is halfway between San Francisco and, and LA. And I had a lot of spare time on my hands. So I decided I would look up the tall poppy syndrome since it had happened to me and I wanted to understand it better and understand if it was in America, if it was in America or not in America, why, why is it or why wasn't it? So I spent, uh, I've been retired now. So I spent nine years, more than nine years. I've been working on it for nine years, but happened before. So I've spent 10 to 15 years about contemplating the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. And before we dive any deeper, can you give a brief overview of what the tall poppy syndrome is for those listeners who may have not experienced that term before? Simplistically, the tall poppy syndrome is seeing a poppy field and seeing one poppy taller than the rest and want to cut that poppy down so that all poppies are the same. In America, we've been an individualistic society. We worship the individual. And the original premise of my book was, since we were pretty much the only country that worships the individual like we do, I thought, well, maybe that was protecting our country from the tall poppy syndrome. By the time I'd completed the book, I felt it was because of our individualism and our meritocracy that America probably was the most toxic place for tall poppy syndrome, but it was unrecognized. So that the, the basic thing is seeing that tall poppy and wanting everybody to be equal. And of course, the world seems awash in that now. Every, you know, there's no valedictorians in our high schools anymore. There's, there's no expertise. We're trying to dumb it down and have all this equity and 
not somebody being better than somebody else. That's a really bad concept because you can't you can't improve unless there's tall poppies. The best way to grow yourself is to latch on to a tall poppy and and borrow their their behaviors, which which is called good envy, which we're, we'll be talking about a lot because that's my favorite emotion and it's the main driver of the tall poppy syndrome. And it's interesting that you say that because of, I come back to the work that I did as a personal trainer many, many years ago. And there would be odd times where I would train two people at the same time, whether they be friends or a partner, a ship or anything like that. And more so than any other times, I'd say 99% of the time, we had to come down to the level of the person who was less effective at exercise. We never rose to the person who was more technically gifted or a little bit more proficient. And as you've mentioned just there, we need those tall poppies to kind of set the standard because of the temptation is to go at the pace of the people, you know, where everyone else is realistically. So it's interesting that you've mentioned that and that's realistically the case. And it's something that's kind of reinforced because it's easier to kind of stay up with that person. But then one person is either forced to go up, which is kind of what you would want, considering we want progression in society wherever we are. But generally what happens is that we get pulled to the level of the lower quote-unquote standard as well. So it's interesting you mentioned that. And you said that you were tall poppies towards the end of your career just before you were about to retire. What made you think that that was you being tall poppy? Did you come across that theory of the syndrome before or was this your first encounter with it? No. So what happened was I was president of the American Spinal Injury Association yeah, I was running a spinal cord injury unit at that time. 100 beds, one of the largest in the world and one of the premier rehabilitation centers in the world as well as our country. I was at a meeting and I was going to go to Australia. They have six centers there and I was going to spend a week at each center. I'd been at a meeting and kind of firming up going to that meeting and I came back from the meeting to my office, and there was a note on my office that I had been moved down from the premier office in our hospital. The hospital was about uh, 300 beds, and I controlled 100, so uh, it was the power play office, corner window. I was at the entrance to the office section of the hospital, so everybody had to walk by my door to to go to work so I know who came in early, who came in late, all those things, all the power and things that go with that sort of situation. And there was a note, nobody told me, there was just a note that my office had been moved down to a cubbyhole. I was just floored. I, I just and I at this time I was a volunteer. It was a county hospital. I had a fairly huge private practice and pretty much donating my time at this facility as well as all my research was of course all donated time but to think that here I was trying to help mankind and kind of the big man on campus as far as research publication and just I was the president of the our society at that time and just couldn't imagine what had happened to me and so I went home and told my wife that night. And at that time, Who Moved My Cheese was was a popular book, which, of course, was, was actually being tall poppy to a certain extent. But 
you know, the, the concept of that particular book was change in life and how to deal with it. And my wife said, you know, you've you've been they've moved your cheese. I've been there 30 years and had done everything really I could do. And, you know, 30 years, that's a long time in any facility. And all the people that you train with and move through the system with are now gone. So you're kind of an island. And I, I was that island and she's pointed that out to me and the young people and rightly so want to move you out. They want to come in. They want to be the big man on campus. And they definitely, that's over a generation. Anytime you get over a generation in society, there's going to be a huge discrepancy in how people approach problems in life, which will be very different from the older person. So I had reached that stage, and, and my wife was emotionally intelligent enough to understand that. So instead of the typical thing, especially a guy getting pissed off and going back and have a, a pissing contest and trying to get my office back and see who did that to me and take revenge on him perhaps, she said, you know, you should just quit. We'll take, uh, she's a working nurse. She said, we'll take Fridays off. Don't do any more. Don't take on any more activities. We'll take Fridays off. We can enjoy LA, which is hard to do on the weekends. And I'll take a Friday off and we'll, we'll enjoy ourselves. So the next day I went to the hospital. I got three, two big plastic garbage cans. I took down all my posters, all the awards we had, threw all my slides, all my scientific papers in and everything. I put the key on the desk and walked out. I didn't say anything to anybody. I just resigned. I just resigned. I didn't even check out of the hospital or do anything. I was out of there. There was nothing they could do to me now. And I called the people in Australia and I told them I wasn't coming and they wanted to know why. And I told them uh, and they go, well, you've been tall poppy. Well, I mean, that was so foreign to me. I had him explain it to me two or three times, <laughs> and I finally got the concept. But that's that's how I was introduced to the syndrome. And then I had to finish. I, it didn't bother me because I had my private practice. I had a financial income, and and actually, I hate to say it, but I had a very, very good practice and academic experience and a professorship and a huge service and teaching a lot of people. I had what a lot of people really thought was the best of both worlds of helping people and teaching people and working and making money. And and so that kind of was going out the window, but it turned out that professionally I enjoyed myself more. I had more time with my patients. I, I wasn't rushed. I wasn't stressed. I enjoyed myself and my family, uh, which I had never done that 30 years. So it, it was turned out to be good. And I, I have to say, when I studied the tall poppy syndrome, most people that are tall poppied, not most, half, 50-50, half, half the people improve and do some soul searching and try and see if they were the problem, if the other people are the problem or just what happened. The other half go down the anger revenge route. That makes a lot of sense. And so I, I was lucky enough to have a wife with good emotional intelligence and directed me down the right path. And then since then, I have to tell you, I've really grown because I know so much more about what's called emotional, I think what's called emotional intelligence now. And I can really dissect something like the tall poppy syndrome very easily. Yeah. And I'm interested to get 
the take of the people who promote this, who maybe this is playing devil's advocate a little bit, but if we look at your situation as an individual on the outside looking in, for Doug, it sucks. You know, you've spent 30 years there, you've committed a lot of time, you've gotten into your position, you're very, very happy. But for those coming through the ranks, and like you mentioned with those generational shifts, it's actually a great thing for them that Doug is moving off his post because if someone else can now fill those boots. So for you, it's not the most ideal thing in the world initially. Obviously, what you made of that and what you made it to be ended up making it a lot better than potentially another outcome. So to play devil's advocate, why is the tall poppy syndrome an issue if maybe if we look on the whole, maybe it benefited more people and it even benefited you in the end to go through that experience? Well, here's one point. Australia introduced me to it and Australia is the home of the tall poppy syndrome. And the reason most people feel that is, is because that was a penal colony for England. And if you're in a prison, everybody's equal. And if somebody has a toothbrush and you don't, that somebody's not going to have the toothbrush very long because they're going to break it or throw it away or do something. So that's how they became a nation. And that's why it's so prevalent there. They haven't moved on from that. That particular concept is everybody's equal. And if somebody is better than the other person, we're not going to try and improve ourselves. We're just going to cut them down. We don't want the whole country to be better. We want everybody to be the same. That culture and that culture, that's Australian culture. And I have to say, I think that kind of concept is becoming more common than not in in many, many countries, especially Europe and the English-speaking countries. And I can tell you, I followed Canada for a long, long time. I grew, grew up in Iowa, which Canada's close. We used to fish and go there every year. And the populace, and when I traveled, I always went with a Canadian company rather than American because sometimes people don't like Americans so much <laughs> abroad. And, um, and there are some ugly Americans, so I thought it was better to travel with Canadians. So I, I have my studied Canada a lot, and they, I can tell you in the 30 years, they, they've really changed from, they always were an egalitarian country, but now they're an aggressive egalitarian country. And Jordan Peterson makes a, who's a fairly well-known, he calls himself a traditionalist that most people call him on the right, but he wants to maintain the status quo of uh, the old-fashioned egalitarian country, and and he thinks it's moving way away from that. And he's a firm believer in the tall poppy syndrome. In fact, he had his own the has his own theory that that the Canadians are like zebras. They're they have this pattern on them, and they fade into that network, and so you can't tell one zebra from the rest. And that's that's his metaphor, which I think is very clever for what's happened to Canada. There are a bunch of zebras, and you can't tell one from the other. But it's this bad envy. I used to hike and work ideas out with, with various people that I was thinking about at the time. And I was running by the tall poppy syndrome with one of my friends, and and explaining it to him. And he said to me, you know, you can't be a tall. He was being kind of mean, actually, but 
it, it hit home. He said, you know, you can't be, you could, you couldn't be cut down because you weren't a tall poppy. You aren't a tall poppy. And then that, that was one of, and that's once again, turning a negative thing into a positive thing. It kind of hurt my feelings at the time, but it, it was a really good concept because in the end, most people that get cut down are not tall poppies. So that's the first thing you have to realize about the tall poppy syndrome. It's not, it's the concept, but it's not the reality in that most people are not tall poppies. So tall poppy syndrome happens very early in your life. It happens in your family. It's prevalent in your family. And your parents encourage that. My, We were a family of seven. My mother, we kept a book, a black book. She kept money amounts on how much she spent for each child. We would only have a birthday party at, say, age 10, and we got to spend 20 bucks on it. And at Christmas time, you know, all our the presents may be a little bit different, but they all had about the same amount spent on them. So they, they worked very hard to show no favoritism and to try and keep everybody equal. And then if you look like Romulus and Remus, uh, they founded Rome. If you know anything about Rome in 750 BC, Romulus eventually it becomes king of the mountain. There's seven hills in Rome, and Romulus kills his brother to become first king of Rome. So that's family envy. And if you look in Cain and Abel, Cain, of course, killed Abel, more family envy. So the envy is very prevalent in the what I call the peer-to-peer, and the peer-to-peer is not the top is not the metaphorical concept of the tall poppy syndrome, but is the mechanism of cutting people down. And so you, it starts in your family as you're born, and thereafter, and then it starts in your school. Your school and your school, the same thing happens. Envy drives. There's two types. Well, all emotions are essentially theoretically neutral. They're a functional state and emotion drives an action. That's the function of the emotion. So some psychologists break them down and Aristotle was the first to do it. Aristotle differentiated good and bad envy. Good envy is uh, emulation so that you see somebody better than you are. Then you try and emulate that person so that you lift yourself up and try and be as good as they are. Bad envy is for whatever reason, you don't want to be like that person or you're too lazy to do it or whatever the reasons are, but you don't try and improve yourself. And so you cut that person down to bring them down to your level, not taking yourself up to their level. So that's the essence of bad envy and what drives the peer-to-peer. So the peer-to-peers in family happens then in schools, happens in college, happens in professional school, and then, especially in our workplace, in, in any hierarchy, in our American hierarchy and meritocracy is terrible, you get into a job and you're already starting to climb the ladder to success. And you have a tendency to cut the other person down rather than improving. And, and worse yet, when you, if you're vying for a position and you don't get that position, you become angry. And during during the process, you were do, using bad envy and disparaging remarks and subtly or openly cutting that other person down. But after it's over, then you become angry, and which is just the opposite thing. You should look in the mirror and figure out, well, 
how did that person get the position instead of me and improve yourself, learn Spanish or whatever it takes to get the promotion, improve yourself so the next time it comes around, you'll be the one to get the promotion. Does that happen? Not very often. In the peer-to-peer, which is prevalent and not involving a tall poppy itself, is driven by bad envy, bad anger, and laziness. Those are the three main emotions driving the peer-to-peer tall poppy syndrome. I was curious to get an idea of what the evolutionary advantage is. What I find is anytime we look into one of these theories or syndromes is that there is something deep down within our genetic makeup that's essentially causing this, but I'm trying to work out what the evolutionary advantage of this is to begin with. Is it survival? Is that if you keep everyone equal, then at least everyone will have some ability. No one will have the advantage and therefore everyone will be able to survive. Is that the primary reason why this is starting in the first place? I don't think so, because if we're thriving, you know, the so-called survival of the fittest in the end, most of the the real tall poppies, they're they're preying on the weak. You know, if, if an eagle, eagle's not going to chase a salmon, eagle's going to chase a spawning salmon who's spent their energy and going to die. So, you know, even they in the end are a little bit lazy. When you see a wolf pack, you know, they're going to separate out the the weak. And so you're actually, they're actually improving the group. The group is not improving itself. The tall poppies improving the group by weaning out the weak. So in the evolutionary cycle, I think it is just the reverse of what you were kind of getting at, that first you should emulate the tall poppy to be more like them. But the tall poppy, I mean, it's your place of work. It's the tall poppy weeding out the office personnel that's not that good and making the company better, getting rid of the shaft. Absolutely. But potentially that would be the rationale behind the people who cut down the tall poppies, right? The idea would be, okay, well, we can remain lazy and we can not get kicked out of our tribe if there isn't someone to weed us out, right? So if we bring everyone back down to one standard level, that would be my understanding of why there is the rationale deep within us to keep cutting people down, essentially. Well, the animal kingdom does have envy. I mean, you you can see in cats and dogs and horses, you know, if, if you have a dog, and you're bonded to that dog, and then the dog sees you hugging your wife, you know, that they are emotional enough to have that. You know, we really evolved from lizards, and they don't have a cortex. They just have a brainstem. They're just emotionally driven. And the lizard doesn't have love. You know, they have sex, and they have a kid, and the kid leaves the home the first day. The young lizard doesn't have love, and I don't think they have envy. We have a lot of lizards in California, and I spent my time watching lizards, and they're very interesting, but some of the emotional development would come later on. But that basic emotion that's driving a lot of our tall poppy syndrome, I don't see it in in the early creatures. So it's evolved with time, and I can tell you it's getting worse, and there's a lot being written about it because bad envy is the, I call it, the currency of the Internet. So the whole Internet is based on envy. So no, I'm, I'm serious that I call envy the most important emotion. 
I mean, love is a great emotion and you feel good, but you're not, you're not loving every minute of the day. And, you know, anger's very short lived. You can go into revenge and prolong it, but you know, it's also a burst emotion. And what's going on every day, every minute of the day, it's, it's envy. You're always, it's a comparison emotion. So you're always comparing yourself to everything around you. And of course, with the internet, the whole world is around us. So, and people are spending four and five hours on the internet. It's not about love. I can tell you that. It's about envy and it's bad envy. You take that selfie. You're at a, you're at a restaurant with your new best friend. You're having a lovely meal. You take a picture of your best friend having that lovely meal and send it to your hundred followers. That's all about envy. That hurts the other people. You think, oh, I'm having so much fun. You're kind of showing off. And you send that email around and then, then here's some one of your so-called friends sitting at home studying or doing yard work or some painful experience for your parents. And they're, they're very envious of the whole situation. So as I say, I don't think livers had envy, but right now the human is driven by envy. Second, secondary, mostly to our media. I hope they're all getting good envy, good envy from our program and, and learning on how to improve themselves and not employ bad envy all the time. It's an easy switch once you understand it. The response for for envy is kindness. So you just have to understand what's happening in your behavior and and look at the opposing what I call virtues to the dark emotions. So we mentioned, I get into the dark emotions since I mentioned it, because that's what drives the dark emotions. The dark emotions are the seven deadly sins, which were described in the fourth century by a pope. And this I found very fascinating because it was really codifying how to be a good monk. And I'm thinking you're in a religious experience. You're just with the priests, the monks in a cloistered society. How can you be tempted by the evils of life? So it's, I found it very interesting that the seven deadly sins would come be decreed by a pope. The seven deadly sins are, we mentioned the first three, which are found in the peer-to-peer -peer cutter, which are bad envy, bad anger, and sloth, which is laziness. So when you see peer-to-peer -peer, tall poppy syndrome, it's usually driven by the cutter, and the cutter most commonly will have one of those three emotions. There's one emotion we don't have, but the world is full of it, which is gluttony. That's not part of the tall poppy syndrome, but gluttony is the only emotion that won't be found of the seven deadly sins in the tall poppy syndrome. So we can switch horses and I'll talk about the tall poppy himself. So the tall poppy metaphor is really, in this situation, what I call the public Instead of peer-to-peer -peer is the public tall poppy. The public tall poppy is really a tall poppy. He's a special person. And uh, that person then does what I call egregious activity. Well, that's one of my favorite catch terms is egregious. And egregious can be many things, but the big three emotional, dark emotional things that tall poppies do that get cut down for 
Uh, number one is pride, by far and away the pride. And that, that was actually number one in the Pope's mind was the worst problem in the cloister was, was pride, excessive pride. Ego, maybe. Yeah, sure. And you see that in your family. You see that in your neighborhood. When you think about it, uh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere on the Internet, too. It's everywhere in our politics, which I have to talk about, too. But let me, I'll finish this part. So pride is number one. So somebody is too prideful. And that, that actually, they don't talk about it in Australia. And most of the Australian psychosocial literature uh, discusses the cutter. Uh, but when I see an episode of tall poppy syndrome in Australia, there's still a lot of pride in the tall poppy themselves. But there's, I think, more more bad envy in the cutter. But anyway, pride is the number one most common reason. Why does a company fail? It's pride. The CEO is too prideful. The owner principal that founded the company I don't want to use Elon Musk because I admire Elon Musk, but, you know, he, he kind of can go down that path and he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. So he does have pride. Pride, once again, is good and bad. It's the good pride. It's like neighborhood pride, you know, fix your house up. Don't let it fall down and look awful. So then you fix your house up and the neighbor next door neighbor fixes his house up and then you have neighborhood pride. So Pride is like envy. It's good. It makes you move forward in a positive and good direction. But excessive pride, hubris, is bad. The next two, especially in America, are lust and greed. So with our meritocracy and our businesses, you know, we, uh, the rich people become powerful and power begets its own problems. So other two dark emotions are lust and and pride, and we had our Me Too movement, which was Harvey Weinstein, for example. First, he's prideful, very powerful, with a little bit on the greedy side. And, of course, lust was a huge part of it. So you frequently see all three bad emotions in the tall poppy who gets cut down. So that's, I think, of everything I want your listeners to understand and think about is how I divide the emotional makeup of the poppy. And when you look at a situation, you you as the viewer get to decide whether or not the cutter has the bad dark emotion or whether it's the tall poppy that has the bad emotion. And through justification, Righteous indignation, it's called, who deserves, which is a key component in, in research, who deserves to be cut down. So we can take, I like Will Smith and Chris Rock at our Academy Award show a year ago. Chris Rock and Will Smith, it is an example of peer-to-peer. Those two were on, on the same level. Friends, maybe friends, frenemies, whatever they were, but they're, they're, that component is peer-to-peer. Peer peer. And Will Smith didn't like the disparaging remarks, his interpretation of disparaging remarks. Personally, as a viewer, uh, it was in relation to his wife's bald head, which he didn't probably know which came from alopecia. But Demi Moore, in a movie, shaved her head. And I think she was on 
Life, a lot of magazines, and everybody said how beautiful she was. And that's what I when I heard the when I heard him say that, I took that that he was meant it as a compliment. And however, Will Smith was thinking he didn't think he thought it was derogatory, or she thought it was derogatory. But anyway, he became obviously very anger angry, and then not only angry. Number one. The immediate anchor walked up and slapped, or semi-walked, hustled up and slapped Chris. But worse yet, he continued on dropping the F-bomb, uh, shouting at him as the show went on. So he he didn't even get burst of, of his initial bad anger response. Then the public got involved. And so it was a originally a peer-to-peer involving envy, anger, and then the public got involved, uh, and of course he was kicked out of the academy for ten years. He got he lost movie contracts, and he lost the court of public opinion. I think it was something like sixty percent thought he was uh, was bad behavior. And you know, first and foremost, probably was his own pride. I mean, I would have never somebody like you or me would have never thought of doing that. Only a prideful person would think that he could go up on stage and slap somebody in a worldwide broadcast. So pride obviously was the driver of his madness at that time. So that's a good example of of a situation where you can where the public has to make it where you yourself make that decision and then you look at your own bias and your own internal feelings and you gain emotional intelligence and that helps you in your own behavior. Yeah, I was about to say the emotional intelligence piece seems to be the key in both the people with the garden shears and the other people who are the tall poppies. It's the sense of just having that emotional awareness and emotional intelligence to, as you've mentioned, not letting that ego or pride become bad ego or pride. And same with the kind of level of entitlement is the way that I would summarize the deadly sins on the side of the the cutters, essentially, is that it's just a case of recognizing, okay, the entitlement is really not getting us anywhere. And also the ego, well, it might have got us somewhere in the past, but it's not going to be like in Will Smith's case, something's going to serve you through and through. So it's just a case of recognizing that maybe all of those are within us as the cutters and as the tall poppies, and then just choosing the way in which you direct that energy, essentially. Yes. And fortunately, uh, once again, I think somebody did try and quiet him down. It was like my wife. I mean, that's how you can get cut down. Most people, and probably Will Smith, will be an improved person from this situation. He's going to have a lot of time to reflect about it. And he and his wife have separated. I mean, there's a lot of consequences of all those actions that occurred. But I think most certainly he's going to be a better person uh, when this is over. I, I mean, Steve Jobs uh, was a true tall poppy and he he got tall poppy. He, you know, he, he was CEO of Apple and the board fired him. And then he went off and started uh, two companies and came back and was a way better CEO than he was uh, prior to that happening. So just just because you get tall poppy, do you, how you grow from it, one, is you analyze the situation. You 
self-reflect. And fortunately, my wife self-reflected. I mean, we I could have gone a completely different path and never heard of the tall poppy syndrome. I could have gotten mad, gone back up there, gotten a fight, got my office back, went to Australia, and never heard about the tall poppy syndrome. And but it was her her emotional intelligence and her not being in the fight. When you're in the fight, it's always hard to see. It's hard to see victory when you're fighting. It's that boxer that said it. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. So when when you when the emotions are flying, it's very hard to make a good decision. So you you always need to step back and evaluate the situation that's how you grow and, and improve yourself yeah well as you said in that situation of yourself it was the pride right it was the pride that was blinding you of the emotions that you needed unfortunately it was your wife who was able to say clearly she was one step away from that was able to see your situation but obviously you were looking at yourself as this person who built themselves up to be in this position and was probably more like how could they possibly do this to me in a way do you know who i am and that probably was the prideful side of it and then it just took someone outside that situation to kind of give you the full context and fortunately you were able to take that response based on the fact that you respect your wife's opinion and you understand her emotional intelligence but it, it would have been the pride blinding you in that situation right right it was my own pride which was the problem from my past history um i know what i would have done which is not what happened but thanks to my wife if uh that's how you do grow and that's why actually the the book that I wrote when I was writing the book, I wanted to show people how how to be a tall poppy and how to grow and this and that from it. And, and it was very difficult for me to write that part. And I had looked on Google and there were 10,000 self-help books annually. That, that's cookbooks. That's every, uh, every, every type imaginable. But when I saw that number, I'm thinking, if there's 10,000 books annually and it comes out next year, there's going to be that many. There's going to be, there must be some inspiration happening, but not very much transformation and certainly not any action. So I, I then made a good decision thinking, well, why should I waste my time trying to do that when it's probably not going to have a big impact? The interesting thing happened with the book I concentrated on other aspects of the tall poppy syndrome, which turned out to be more of a self-help than me trying to write a self-help book. One of the things that came out of the book was when I studied tall poppies. And once again, your tall poppy is not my tall poppy. So getting somebody uh, uni that's universally accepted as a tall poppy with very few people wanting to cut them down is very difficult to do. That was a, another problem I was having with writing the book or the section on how to be tall poppy. Because just as I mentioned, Steve Jobs, he had his problems. Bill Gates has his his problems. Um, Thomas Jefferson had his problems. George Washington had his problems. So a lot of our leaders had problems. So I, I really struggled with that. But I came out with a chapter devoted to what I call the Tall Poppy Hall of Fame. And the Tall Poppy, Tall Poppy Hall of Fame was serving others. doesn't matter how you serve them, uh, what you're serving them. I mean, it can be the environment, which, uh, which was, I think I had two people that were big environmentalists. But, you know, serving other people and, and negating 
yourself a little bit. Kind of like washing Jesus' feet or Jesus washing other people's feet. I was about to ask, did Jesus make your top 10 of the Hall of Fame? Because of everything that I'm hearing you say comes back, whether you believe the story or not, that's probably one of the most prevalent examples of the tall poppy syndrome in action, no? Well, I think it's the most prevalent example, and you really, he is, and I just fortunately back from a month and a month ago, I was in Israel following Jesus's footsteps. Oh, wow. Uh, just for what you're talking about, trying to study the man and look for defects, and, and there's one not very many people on earth, but I couldn't find any defects. And I think it was his perfection that uh, in the end got to most people and wanted to cut him down. But yes, he's my my big figure. You know, Christianity is still, as a whole, is being cut down more now than ever. And I tried, in, and so even Jesus Christ is a polarizing figure and so I didn't put him. I did mention Stefan in from the book of Acts. He's a disciple. He was the first one. He's the first martyr. So I did take two things from the Bible. I did, talked about Cain and Abel, which we talked about earlier, the familial envy. And I, and I talked about Stefan, who was the same as Christ. He was just preaching goodness, and he's, he was stoned to death. So I did take a couple examples from the Bible. I like the Bible a lot. Actually, the Bible, if you want to understand and see the tall poppy syndrome, uh, read the Bible. The Bible is mostly about strong figures, mostly about tall poppies, Moses, for example. And almost every one, the only one that didn't get cut down that, that I have figured out is Daniel. But almost every figure in the Bible was cut down. And and even Moses, you know, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. If you know the Bible, he struck the, he's supposed to put his staff down on the rock and kind of tap it. And he was kind of angry with our Lord for giving him some direction and his own pride got in the way and he kind of smashed the staff down on the rock to have the water come out. And because of that, he didn't get to go into the promised land. So even, and he is one of the best figures and best people to study, but even he had his faults. So writing the book and and getting that person that doesn't have faults is very hard to do. And that's a very good lesson for society. If you have these religious figures and, and once again, the Pope defining the seven deadly sins is that bad emotions are everywhere and we have to cut everybody a break. Sooner or later, everybody screws up, just like Will Smith. So we should be a little bit careful of how often we cut and who we cut. Yeah, and that actually brings me on to my next point, which is maybe the story of Jesus Christ is a fantastic way to exemplify your points on the tall poppy syndrome from the past. But something that's in our present day culture is cancel culture, which seems to be incredibly prevalent at this moment in time, which is, you know, everyone who's a public figure is on the edge of potentially being canceled with one opinion or one thing that they might say. And as you mentioned, throughout the course of the Bible, when we're looking at the people with 
hopefully the best possible values and the best awareness of avoiding those sins eventually mess up, what hope does that give everyone else like Will Smith, for example, or every other public figure who is just trying not to get canceled? I mean, that's a perfect example. And, and the you know, the disciples, everybody was afraid to say they're a Christian. And that's still the situation in many of the communistic countries, for example, or even some of the Muslim countries, you can't be a Catholic or a religious person. So I don't want to talk too much. We'll offend somebody. But as I mentioned, I think envy's worth it. We're just as a world, we're we're getting worse instead of better, and envy, bad envy is a big portion of that. And the cancel culture basically is one big tall poppy syndrome cutting machine, as far as I'm personally concerned. And it's it's easy, um, it's easy in retrospect to cut people down, but you know most of this stuff is taken out of context. And I don't, you know, Thomas Jefferson, one of my heroes, my own personal heroes, he he was on the wrong side of history, but that's the way it was back then. And most people have been slaves of one sort or another. So you have to, when you're looking at, at times, that's why when I wrote the book, I did a world view and a time review uh, of looking at different periods. And, you know, the tall poppy syndrome has evolved, you know, from Genghis Khan, for example. Genghis Khan is a good man. He did a lot for China. He united it. I mean, many of his principles are still in effect. But when he conquered a village, if you were taller than a, the axe handle, the axis, axle on the wagon wheel, he killed you because he didn't want opposition. So he wanted that young mind that he could form. And so he killed a lot of people unnecessarily. So was he a bad guy? He was a terrible guy. Did he do a lot of good? Yeah, he did a lot of good. So times were way different back then. And and it was about survival. If It's kind of like James Bond, killed or be killed. So back then, if you didn't conquer and put the enemy at their knees, you have to sleep with one eye open. Yeah, and with all the research that you've done and all of the experience you now have in this field, what potential, I'm not going to call them solutions because I think that's too much of a strong word, but what strategies can we use to move forward? Because of what I see is that when we look at the cutters, the entitled are getting more entitled and potentially those who are you know making those steps towards progress are making more steps towards progress and it doesn't even matter if the people who make steps towards progress they're here but those who feel entitled are like kind of coming away and coming away and coming away we are creating even more of a gap between ourselves and therefore i can only see this kind of getting worse it's being exacerbated by social media and the internet as well so what are some of the solutions that maybe you've come up with that you think are the antidote to the direction that this seems to be heading in? Well, it's a virtuous life, which we don't have. And Stoicism, for example, is gaining popularity. That occurred before Christianity occurred. And to a certain extent, it was their virtuous life. And of course, in the Far East, it's Buddhism. When you look at the various movements, because they're all movements, whether it's Buddhism, Shintoism, Christianity, it's a movement. When you look at the world movements, they're, they're driven by virtues. And there's only about six, when you then look at all the movements, 
you can make those diagrams where the circles overlap and stuff, and there's about four to six virtues that are common to to each movement. And that's what we need to do is to just practice those common virtues. And that's that's actually why I like that's why I actually did the seven deadly sins and wanted I wanted you to be able to think about something and remember from from our talk if I just said, Well, you have to be kind doesn't really stick. No. <laughs> Nobody's gonna remember what we said. But if we if well in medicine, you know, we learn by disease. That that's another reason the book the, I think the Tall Poppy Syndrome is a self help book because it's about the negative. But you know, I spent my life treating negativity, disease. And if you you can't come into my office and say I'm fine, you know, it's like, okay, you can leave now. You only work sort of backwards. You start negative and go positive you don't it's hard to be positive and keep going positive yeah that's fair and that's why the tall poppy gets cut down the egregious tall poppy so it's the seven deadly sins then for every sin then there's a virtue so if you look at the seven deadly sins uh and then just look at the opposing virtue and that's how you need to lead lead your life if you do it as the peer-to-peer you won't be a cutter and if you understand pride lust and greed then you've cut out most of the causes to be egregious and be cut down so if you're going to be greedy you know be think more charitable if you're going to be lustful think a little more chastity so it's really it's really in in the virtues and you know philosophy is really the study of truth and so you know that's why the the greek and romans are coming back is because it was before Christianity, and they used truth and and virtue, and so we're trying to get back to that. Of course, the Far East, I don't think, has drifted a far away from that as us. And their religions, they're easier to practice. They're, if you go to Japan or China, it's easier to see a Buddhist temple and to walk by it and to light the incense or do something. So in our in the Western culture, we've gone completely opposite that we're getting away from churches we're not religious anymore we all we do is consume you don't go by downtown LA and find some church and stop in and say a quick prayer or some place you can take five and think about life and be nice so that's that's our problem we we've sort of lost direction and i you know i even the israeli gaza conflict now is just is is like society as a whole, individual society, big societies, countries, it's pretty split on who's right and who's wrong. And that that's impossible to work through when we can't define the truth. You know, what's the real problem and how to solve it? So our little truth in the tall poppy syndrome, I've def- defined some things to identify and motions involved. And you can either look as a psychologist, is a positive part of the emotion and do that part and not even think about Christianity, just think about good envy, not bad envy, and concentrate on that and think less if you don't want to be virtuous and 
go kind of the Christianity philosophy, Western thinking. But uh, I'm I'm a little bit of a religious guy and and like the virtuous life. And if you read the chapter on uh, my Hall of Fames, it's it's the service people. I mean, just the best way to be a, think about how to be a good citizen is is to be a nice guy and help. Help your fellow man. Help the environment. Just just be helpful to society. That's that's the easiest way to be a tall poppy. Absolutely, and I think that there's no surprise that a lot of people are feeling lost, right? I think that religion, whether again you want to prescribe to that or not, just provided an excellent framework and some clear rules to live by, which were embedded in virtues, essentially, as you mentioned. And I think that that's the big problem that we have in modern society is that people don't want to grip onto religion because they, like you said, Jesus even is a very polarizing figure and religion, full stop, is also very polarizing now. Although when you can look beyond maybe the modern constructs of the church and everything along those lines, and you just look to the fundamental principles that are founded in the Bible, as you've discussed many of them today, you find a pretty good framework to live by. And I think that that's pretty much what you're coming to as well. The whole thing with me, uh, which I didn't really realize until I wrote the book, was I came from a very deep religious background. My parents were very religious Catholics, and I was an altar boy and went to Catholic all-boy Catholic high school. I went to Catholic college, a Jesuit school. I went to a Jesuit medical school, and I didn't understand good envy at that time, but I used good envy. I never I had bad bones. Everybody's bad. But I just figured out early on to look at the smart guys and befriend them and try and study. I mean, even in medical school, I, um, my sophomore year, I studied. I lived with two guys who were in the top 10 in the class. The reason I lived with them was because I wanted to study their habits and try and be like them. And so I, my life was very easy because I had lots of people trying to help me. I was very lucky in my residency and, you know, going to California and the place, places that I worked to until I was cut down. I, most of the time, everybody was pointing me in the right direction. And they, there's a nice term, I like, uh, idiom I like to use, when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. And that's who I was. So, you know, they knew I wanted to study. They knew I wanted to get ahead. So if you're doing good and and you have good intentions, other people know that, recognize that, and they want to help you. And so I had, you know, here, you you know, to make your career thrive, you need to do this. Or, you know, why don't you look into this? Why don't you write this up? So there, there were amples and uh, people trying to, not keep me on the straight and narrow. I was fairly straight and narrow, but just trying to help me. That was one of the reasons I was successful, not not because I was aggressive. I was pretty aggressive, but uh, I just had a lot of people helping me, and I wasn't doing bad things. On our spinal cord injury unit, I probably had six different teams working for me, and there were going to be 10 to 15 people on a team. And, you know, if you favor some people in that time, just collect my family over others. You know, there are going to be people get mad at you and lash out at favoritism and stuff. So, I, you know, I was very just very fair. So it was very hard in 
very hard to lead in that environment to keep things on the level and not be less full at all the pretty nurses and therapists that I worked with. And so you, you, you lose credibility once you flip to the bad side. So I, I was very fortunate to have that early, the early background that my parents gave me and, and probably Christianity at the same time. So my parents, you know, seven kids never got divorced. We have a thing in medicine called um, adverse childhood experiences, which is, is also good for your listeners to understand. Adverse childhood experiences happen in childhood and they're a divorce in the family and alcoholic in the family and unwed pregnancy, uh, drug abuse. So there's these negative things in, in your life. And if you have three of those, your chance of success goes way down the tube. Well, once again, I had zero. I mean, I just came from Americana, this idyllic childhood. I just didn't have any adverse childhood experiences. And when you look at our countries now, that's very, very uncommon. I mean, single parents is the norm now, I think. I think there's more single parents than two-parent families and, and not having drug abuse, and, yeah, suicides, depression, uh, bad emotions. It, that's just prevalent. So Yeah, for sure. So I think it gives inspiration to parents to essentially give their children the best start in life. And also for those who are maybe not parents who are a little bit younger, it's just a case of trying to go on that virtuous cycle and seeing where it takes you essentially. But Doug, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I think we could probably go on for another couple of hours, but I do have to wrap up here. So with that being said, where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing? I have two websites. One's the, what I call the working website, which is where to find my book and sort of my platform. I actually put tall poppy syndrome in the scientific literature. It's in the psychosocial, but not in the medical literature. So I have eight or nine articles that I published on it. So those are on there. Blogs are on there. Podcasts are on there. Of course, Amazon and how to get the book is on there. That's Doug Garland, D-O-U-G-G-A-R-L-A-N-D.com. The thing that I like and spend most of my time now is tallpoppysyndrome.org. One word, that's my blog site. I don't like too much social media, so <laughs> I just blog. Well, I, I don't, you know, I like to practice what I preach. So I just blog uh, every seven to 10 days so I don't give people sentry overload. And I just try and take current events. I just did the um, lady that won the Nobel Prize in medicine for her work in RNA, and she was tall poppy at least two times. It's a great story. But anyway, the tallpoppysyndrome.org is my blog site. It's very contemporary, kind of happening, and we kind of go over the things we talk about. I usually do a case study and then do my my analysis. Might might not be your analysis of it, but my analysis of it. I spend a lot of time in thinking on it, so I like that one a lot. Amazing. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below. But Doug, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Nice meeting you. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
and Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.